Sure, sure, I heard you, but stop making like a civics teacher, will you? What difference could my one vote make? Be a good guy, huh? Stop trying to sell me. No sale. I've never voted, and I never will. A woman's place is in the home. Leave politics to the men. No sale. Whatever way you slice it, no matter how you dress it, politics is still a dirty business. Why vote for any of them? Let's sit this one out. No sale. Living, 1948. Brought to you each week by NBC and its affiliated stations, today holds up its mirror to reflect the whys and the wherefores of the great retreat from democracy when half our voting population will not go to the polls next Tuesday in a drama document entitled... Let's sit this one out. And here to help us explore the voting habits of you, his fellow citizens, is your narrator, Ben Grower. Greetings, America. For weeks now, the song has been heard throughout the land. In major and minor keys and with infinite variations, we've heard the beguiling strains of the ditty entitled, Come Out to the Polls and Give Us Your Vote. And next Tuesday, between dawn and evening, that siren song must pay off in voters sashaying down to the polling booth. But will it pay off? We needn't wait until Wednesday for the answer. According to an early estimate by the Gallup poll, out of 93 million citizens of voting age, 47 million will vote next Tuesday. 46 million will set this one out. Or putting it another way, 49% of our potential voters will be election day wallflowers. And yet, come Wednesday, November 3rd, you may well find that the sitters out, by voting, might have changed the results of the election all the way down the line from the presidency to justice of the peace. To show you what we mean, let's go back to an election not so many years ago. In the October days of that year, someone everywhere was saying, Might as well try to stop the wind from blowing. Why should I even bother going across the street to the polling place? What earthly good would my one measly vote do? So our nearsighted friend and millions of others sat out that election. Their uncast votes certainly didn't help the loser, but they did help the victor. This is how they did it. In 26 states, with 268 electoral votes, enough to win, the victor had a total majority of only 340,000 votes, less than one vote per 100 people. In 16 states, had only one out of every 10 non-voters cast a ballot, the election might have been reversed. Do you get the idea now, Mr. Election Wallflower? Did you ever hear of a team winning a World Series by never showing up at the ballpark? How about that, Mr. Wallflower? Okay, okay, I'll take your word for it. Now, don't take my word for it. Let's see what can happen when the Wallflowers suddenly decide to join the dance. In 1916, with America on the verge of war, Charles Evans Hughes and Woodrow Wilson were opposed for the presidency. A few hours after the polls closed, two newspaper men met in a hotel room in Washington. What are you doing up? I thought you'd gone to bed. Uh, yeah, I'm on my way, Pete, but I thought I'd stop by and collect something to sweeten my dreams. How's about forking over that hundred you bet on Wilson? What's the rush? Well, you know me. I never believe in putting off for tomorrow what I can collect tonight. It's in the bag, Petey boy. Hughes has just gone off the bed with the words, Good night, Mr. President, ringing in his ears. You're all jumping the gun, Al. We're still waiting for the results from California. Okay, if you want to be technical about it. But you must be expecting a modern miracle. California's always been Republican. Not this year, brother. I got a hunch California's going for Wilson. Democratic for the first time in history? 
Oh, come on. Let's have the dough. I'll buy you a nightcap. Just a minute. I think Hughes put his foot in it when he snubbed Governor Hiram Johnson. Johnson's the most popular man in California. My hunch says that people will be sore enough to get off their perches and vote for Wilson. In fact, I'll lay another 50 on that hunch. You're wrong, sucker. And with early morning came the results from California. The sit-out votes had gone to the polls. For the first time in history, the Democrats carried the state. By a mighty splendor, 2,000 votes, the state went to Wilson, and with the state went the presidency. You get it now, Mr. Wallflower? I think I do. Sitting out an election will never help elect your candidate, but it may very well fatten the chances of the opposition. You've got it. That government is strongest, of which every man feels himself a part. Thomas Jefferson said that. The sense of that statement, if not the actual words, must be familiar to you. Certainly you must recall a civics class in which the teacher said, I want to impress this on you, boys and girls. Your vote will be your most precious possession as a citizen of a democracy. It will serve as your voice in the conduct of your government. And you cannot be a good citizen without exercising your franchise. A democracy cannot remain sound and healthy without real participation by its citizens. On May 10th, 90 and 6 tenths percent of the eligible voters cast ballots. But that was in Korea. In the last two general elections, 90% of those eligible went to the polls. Ah, but that was in Italy. In 1946, 81, 76%, and 74%. Ah, but that was in another country, in fact, three other countries, namely France, Great Britain, and Canada. In our own democracy in that same year of 46, we set a new all-time record for the number of voters that didn't. Only 38% of Americans cast ballots. Korea, over 90%. Italy, 90%. France, 81%. England, 76%. But in our own United States, only 38%. Dr. George Gallup called it one of the worst scandals of our American democracy. How does it come about, this sorry record? This business of non-voting that scandalizes our fair democratic name. Well, I can only speak for myself, but up until two years ago, I just never felt that I had anything to vote for one way or the other. Now it's a different matter. What changed your mind? I inherited an apartment house and also a business building. I've got two good reasons for voting now. I had four good reasons for voting. My wife, my two children, and myself. I walked three miles into town to register. Because I'm a college graduate, the election official didn't ask me to show that I could read or write. Instead, he asked me just one question. What clauses of the present state constitution are derived from the Magna Carta? To me, there was only one answer to that question, and I gave that answer. I don't know. Unless it's that no Negroes should be allowed to vote in this commonwealth. Next Tuesday, in 11 of our states, an estimated 7,700,000 citizens will not vote because of unpaid poll taxes, discriminatory literacy tests, and other legalistic barbed wire around the polling places. 575,000 residents of the District of Columbia will not vote because for voting purposes, our nation's capital is not part of the United States. 15 million citizens will not vote because of illness, because they're away from home and will not use absentee ballots, because they're unable to meet resident requirements, because of illiteracy. Because they're in the armed forces and are not using absentee ballots. Because they're in institutions or prisons. But the great majority of those sitting out the election, almost 25 million, 
will do so because of the four I's, indifference, ignorance, inconvenience, and inertia. These 25 million make up the saddest statistic of all. In a time and in a world where people are clawing, fighting, dying for democracy, these 25 million are beating a lazy retreat from democracy. Listen to their chant as they march backward. Listen carefully, for among their voices you may discover your own. Politics is the dirtiest business. Politician? Why, he's the guy who steals your pot to cook your food. I'd rather see my boy above than a politician. They're all skin specialists, stripping it off you and taking care of their own. We keep them real good, but they keep us broke, battered, and barefoot. The three ugly brothers, poverty, plague, and politicians. This is only a small sample. But surely you recognize that constant cantata entitled A Pox on Politics. True, it's only words the chorus gives out, but they're dangerous. Because while there's life in this democracy, there's politics and politicians. And for anyone to turn a complete and final cold shoulder on all politicians is to say goodbye to all hopes for a good life and a peaceful one. While there are parties to choose from and ballots with which to make that choice, there is hope. There is hope if the ballots are put to use for peace, for plenty, for democracy. Perhaps most of what we are saying can best be told in the story of what happened in an eastern industrial city. Let's call it uh, Browtown. Area, one and a quarter square miles. Population, 51,615. Browtown is hardly a garden spot. Factories and warehouses, bleak blocks of ancient brownstone houses, soot and smoke. A cat lover's paradise if you love them loud and articulate, but not a garden spot, definitely. The cast of characters... First, the citizenry of Browtown, long-suffering, cynical, indifferent. Then, Jim Vincent, mayor and political boss. His political machine and his palace guard, the Vincent family. Also, a few yearners for political change, notably a young lawyer named Pete Reamer. Sure, I can tell you about the Vincents. They started from a Browtown butcher years ago, and they were a thriving and prolific bunch. James was the bright boy, the political dean of the clan. He quit school at nine, drove a dump wagon, quit that to become a ward healer. In 25, Jimmy had what it takes to slip right into the boss's seat. He controlled the police and fire departments. He had his hand right on the spigot of the party's campaign funds. On a $5,000 a year salary, he's piled up about $3 million. A real true-to-life Horatio Alger success story. Nerve and verb, or from garbage boy to garbage man. Mm-hmm. Smart boy, that Jimmy. Plenty smart. Cold and sharp as an ice pick. He got himself elected mayor, and he ran the city strictly for James Vincent. He loaded the public payrolls with 79 of his relatives. He made his brother, Tom, chief of police, his nephew, Bob, superintendent of schools. He siphoned 3% kickbacks from every city employee. His trucks collected the city garbage, and the streets were always filthy. Twenty-two years this went on and grew worse, and Vincent got rich and richer. Taxes went sky high, population dropped off, building and business slowed to a crawl. And no opposition in all this time? What there might have been was choked right in the cradle. Jim saw to that. You shut up and played ball and voted the right way, the Vincent way, or you were out of a job, out of customers for your butter and eggs, out of a place to live, and out of the city. A lot of people thought Vincent was no worse than other bosses. And they were willing to take a Bush League handout in exchange for a Major League shakedown. Those were the years that I was trying to get a law practice. My brother Luke was on the police force. The guys we knew and grew up with were all in the same boat. 
We griped among ourselves, but that's all. Well, then where did it start? What finally made you take action? Well, the war, I guess. A lot of us were in it. When we finally got back, we realized that Browtown was a sector in that same war, and the time was ripe to take it. So we began talking things up, and a lot of people listened. So we talked louder and longer. But then we had to face the facts. Aggie Clements, writer for the paper, made us face them. Or else why would I stick my neck out to come to this little meeting? Then what don't you agree with? I don't agree with the idea that we can lick Jim Vincent with words and good intentions. We've got to organize just as he's organized and better if possible. Let's face it. We need to set up a machine to put Vincent out and our man in. Well, that's okay, Aggie, but I still don't see why we can't do our fighting in the primaries. The majority of the people in this city vote the party in the state and national elections. What's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong with that. First of all, only registered members of the party would be entitled to vote. And second, Vincent would vote every corpse in the cemetery, in addition to everybody on the city payroll. Then what's your suggestion? Run our ticket outside the party? Right. We'll get our candidate on the ballot for the election, and we'll get him on by petition. We only need 2,500 signatures. Then we put up our ticket for the people of the whole city to come in on, no matter what their party. And if enough of them come in... We're on our way. It's the city against the Vincent. Well, that makes sense. If we can get this ticket lined up, we'll be doing something the whole state will be thankful for. Oh, wait a minute. If we're having a new deal here, why don't we make it complete? Why don't we give ourselves some insurance against theft? I mean, why should we be the only city in the state that doesn't use voting machines? Just because Vincent doesn't like them. Well, let's get organized first, and then let's we Let's can... do both. Let's start organizing with a petition to the governor for voting machines and a representative delegation to present that petition. Okay, I'll go along on that plan. Okay. Those in favor, say aye. Aye! It takes time and talk to get a thing like we planned rolling. Vincent and his boys began putting on the screws. Luke and a lot of other cops who were with us were suspended for insubordination. Warning was passed to the teachers against mixing in politics. Certain landlords started getting tough with certain tenants who happened to be doing a lot of work to set up the citizens' good government ticket. But all these stunts weren't getting Vincent a thing. We got up our petition for the voting machines, and then on the night before we sent off our delegation to the governor, we called a public meeting in a small neighborhood hall. The place was packed. Just as we got started, fights broke out in several parts of the hall, and then by a strange coincidence, a picked squad of goons appeared and broke up the meeting. The next morning, four of us went up to the city hall to have it out with the mayor. Brother Tom Vincent, the police chief, was with him. I got a lot of things to look after. Got no time to listen to beefs from a two-bit shyster. What's eating your liver, Raymer? Which of your strong arm boys did it. What? What are you talking about? Don't you remember? About? about the geniuses you sent down to break up our meeting. Oh, you're crazy as a bed bugger. Uh, maybe you're drunk. Well, take your choice, Jim. We still want to know the answer. I didn't have a thing to do with last night. Nothing. All right, then it was Brother Tom here who did it for you. What's the difference? You're looking a little pale, Tom. You should cut down on those cigars. You're a little stove, Pete, but you're sure throwing a lot of heat. I'm not the only one, Tom. Take a good look at your thermometer. The temperature's rising in this city. It may get too hot for you. Just you smart birds, try it. I'll turn a big hose on you and cool you down fast. I'll wash you right down the gutter into the sewer. Maybe, Mr. Mayor. And then maybe after the election you'll find the hose is turned the other way. I don't think you're that waterproof. Listen, you little stinker. All right, Jim, hold up. No cause for that kind of talk. That goes for you too, Pete. Sure, you feel bad about what happened at your meeting. I don't blame you. 
I think it's a crying shame some of your crowd couldn't behave themselves in a public place. Yeah, that tongue's right, Pete. You people ought to be more careful who you let into your meetings. You're so right. Yeah? Hold it. Somebody wants to talk to you, Pete. Says it's important. Thanks. Hello? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, gentlemen, you got a great act here, and you've had a sensational run, but your booking is just about over. Okay, okay, we've heard your beef. Now get out. I'm on my way, but I won't leave you in suspense. That phone call, we just got word from the Capitol. For the first time, they're sending in voting machines. How about that? You dumb amateur politicians. Where did you get that pipe dream from? From the governor himself. Our delegation just left his office. Look, the handwriting is on the wall, gents. Translated from the early Babylonian, it says, quote, Get your walking shoes ready, boys. Unquote. Spreading 15 grand around to sweeten his pitch, and there's only one way to match that. Songs, banners, floats, they're all fine, but it's not enough. We've got to get to the voters door by door, house by house, block by block. Sure, I'll vote the good government tickets. Maybe for the first time in 18 years, my vote will get its self-respect back. Jim Vincent's a fine man. He's never done me or my family any harm. He gave my husband a job, and... He sent a beautiful wreath to his funeral last year. It would be sinful to vote against that good man. Listen, somebody saw me at your meeting and the word got around. Yesterday, every customer on the city payroll stopped buying milk from me. There's six votes in this family, and they're all going against Vincent. But the intention of the entire state centered on today's election in Browtown. That's city has never seen a campaign like this one. Today will tell the story. Hey, Marty, any word yet? Uh, only three precincts in so far. Vincent's leading. Attention, 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 please. With two precincts still to be tabulated, Mayor James Vincent speaking for himself and his ticket has conceded defeat. The party's over. Good night, Vincent. Go! 
was a few months after the election when Aggie Clement summed up some of the results. You know, a funny things happen to a lot of us. Suddenly we become politicians. Not because we wanted to, but because we had to. And we're the same people who once said politics is evil. And some of us said politics is a necessary evil. Now we say it and we know it's so. Politics is necessary, period. Ladies and gentlemen, the applause you're hearing is supplied by Dr. George H. Gallup, the founder and director of the Gallup Poll. I take it, Dr. Gallup, that you agree with the sentiments of Miss Clemens? I do indeed, Ben. We used to look upon democracy as an easy, perpetual motion sort of government. But two world wars have shown us the fallacy of this. Democracy is, actually, the hardest kind of government to keep in going condition. Now is the time, more than ever... But our politics and our politicians must be right. We cannot afford to sit out any election, local or national. But merely voting is not enough. Well, it is to many people I know. Then those people are close kin to those who sit out the elections. We must use our ballots knowingly and carefully, for they can buy us much or cost us dearly. I remember reading an especially significant result of one of your polls. Out of a representative group of citizens from coast to coast, on November of last year, only 61% had ever heard or read about the Marshall Plan. Only 25% of them could state its purpose. Yes, I remember. At the same time, polls showed that 93% of our fellow citizens were exercised over the momentous issue of long skirts versus short skirts. <laughs> What about our knowledge of more vital domestic issues? The results of our investigations here have been almost as dismaying as in the foreign field. Well, who or what, Dr. Gallup, do you think is responsible for this condition? No one person or one thing. The responsibility for an ill-informed electorate is shared by the government, by the communications industries, by the schools, and by the people themselves. The government can make the facts available. The press and radio can report fully world events. But the individual citizen must have the desire to know what is going on outside his own tiny sphere if democracy is to function at its best. With that knowledge would come more intelligent voting on Election Day. With that knowledge would come fewer voters deciding to set this one out. Okay, America, you take it from there. Living 1948 is prepared and presented for the University of the Air by an NBC Public Affairs staff under the supervision of Wade Arnold. Today's script was written by Milton Wayne. Music conducted by Milton Catum. Your narrator was Ben Grower, assisted today by Dr. George Gallup of the American Institute of Public Opinion. The program was directed by Jack Cuny. We invite you to keep abreast of Living 1948 by listening next week to another drama document entitled To Uphold and Defend. Remember to hear the big five tonight. Ozzie and Harriet, Jack Benny, Phil Harris and Alice Fay, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and Fred Allen with guest Doc Rockwell. For the best time of your life, the best time is tonight on most of these NBC stations. Robert Warren speaking. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.